and welcome to episode 1124 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. I had a less exciting weekend than you did, but this is also mm-hmm. the second podcast you've recorded since becoming a married person, so maybe <laughs> there's true. no need to belabor the point. Ben Lindbergh, yeah. now a married person. Congratulations. Yeah. Do I sound like a married man? Do I sound different? I sound not, deeply well, committed in a, a <laughs> lifelong relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sound you sound shifted in a shifted toward some sort of emotional permanence. So congratulations. Uh, I'm going to, I'll just keep notes on how this seems to have changed you, but I'm going to try to avoid any sort of marriage joke because there is no <laughs> new ground to uh, skipping right ahead. Did, <laughs> did you have a chance to pay attention to any baseball this weekend? Yeah, a little bit. I was uh, I wasn't able to watch the the Yankees Astros game on Saturday because I was getting <laughs> married, and then that was my wedding night. I wasn't watching a whole lot of baseball, but I was like in the hotel lobby watching Yankees Astros game one the night before. I was kind of seeing snippets here and there. I was checking my at bat app here and there, and then uh, Sunday I was back in time to watch Cubs Dodgers. So I didn't watch all the baseball, but I think I am fully apprised of the baseball that was played you didn't want to be one of those grooms who demanded a projector screen during the wedding to have the game on the wall no my phone was actually confiscated so that i would not be tempted to check anything (laughs) during the actual ceremony itself i did get it back during the reception which was good but everything went well it was very nice and i was happy and jesse was happy and uh sorry you couldn't make it but i know that you had a very good excuse which was that i got married in the middle of october which was probably bad from a writing and podcasting perspective yeah as a matter so. of fact uh with that in mind let me share with you a uh, text message that i got from dave just the other day saturday october 14th this is a message sent at 12:24 p.m pacific time quote ben got married in october on purpose did you talk about this on a <laughs> podcast did you call him a crazy person <laughs> see dave cameron also got married in october but that was uh huh. that was before that, that was years ago i don't remember how yeah. many years dave has been married for but that was uh that was before current responsibilities but that's all right you are not mm-hmm. exclusively a baseball writer anymore and your website yeah. has other baseball writers so at the end of the yeah. day there are things more important than writing about how the yankees lost a game to the astros because gary sanchez couldn't <laughs> handle a bounce throw yeah, yeah. Jesse likes October, nice fall weather, leaves changing. I put up very weak resistance when this was initially <laughs> proposed, but ultimately I caved and uh, it went fine and my colleagues picked up the slack. But the ceremony itself went almost flawlessly. There was just one one error, one flub that I made, which is that when you're repeating your vows, my great uncle was officiating. It happened to be his anniversary too, his 44th. So that was cool. And he made it pretty easy for me, very digestible little statements (laughs) that I was supposed to repeat back and it was you know I Ben Lindbergh I Ben Lindbergh etc it was pretty easy to remember but then the very last line is a real mouthful and there's no I guess easy way to break it up so he said the whole thing at once so it's in token and pledge of the vows between us or the vow between us maybe with this ring I thee wed and that's a lot to remember (laughs) it's a, a bunch of words it's a high leverage situation I'm about to put the ring on her finger and I said in token and pledge of the vow between us with this wing, I be wed. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of Elmer fudded it. <laughs> Which, in my defense, it's a tough phrase to say. Try saying with this ring, I be wed several times quickly while you're actually getting married. And it's not, not the easiest, but hopefully it was it was cute. It got a laugh. I actually just mispronounced it in my head. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's tough. There's like W sounds on either side of the ring. And so I understand why I did it. I don't know. Maybe I left myself a a loophole there. If I ever want to get out of this thing, (laughs) I can just say I didn't actually have a, a wing with me. But I don't know if that would hold up. At the very least, and you know, in in the event that things remain happy in this uh, relationship, now you can just to have set yourself up for for decades of wing themed anniversary gifts. Yes, no, I will not be hearing the end of it. So. <laughs> Anyway, we can talk about actual baseball. Did you have some baseball banter before we get into breaking down games and championship series, which both stand at 2 nothing toward the Astros and the Dodgers, respectively? And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Yes. So uh, let me, I'm going to send you a picture. I'm going to see if this can work. Because this is something that happened on, okay, I think I have sent you now a picture on Skype. Is that true? Yeah, I think, I think that's okay. true. Okay, click, click yeah, on the picture. Okay. All right. Okay. And then the picture opens up. So this this happened on Saturday. You would not have seen this, and although maybe you watched highlights. I don't know. But you're looking at it now. Saturday, top of the fifth inning. Yes. The Yankees had a runner on some base. They're losing one nothing. And Todd Frazier reached out and poked a long fly ball to the, I guess it's not Enron Field anymore. What's it called now? Minute Maid. To the Minute Maid left mm-hmm. center field fence. And uh, the ball hit the fence on the fly and remained there. It remained there uh, <laughs> about, it looks like, I would say, 12 feet maybe 10 to 12 feet off the ground it got stuck between the Mm -hmm. chain link fence which is a silly thing to make a fence out of and some padding that is 12 feet off the ground which is a very silly place for there to be padding so this was ruled i think a ground rule double an actual ground rule double not an automatic double which is a common slip up that people make but this would have been either an actual ground rule or a hastily arrived at impromptu ground rule i don't know if there was a ground rule for this for what happens when a ball gets stuck in the padding up there but really so George Springer, you can see him in the picture. He's turned around gesturing like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, there's a ball up there. <laughs> yeah. It's the ball that we need. I I can't get it. <laughs> and uh, I think the umpire ruled it a dead ball shortly thereafter. And Springer tried to throw his glove at it, which is always fantastic. It didn't mm. work. Should have had Aaron Judge come out there. Well, that's what. Him. Okay. So the first, the first thing is, why is there padding? so high off the ground such that it would be impossible (laughs) for any human being to collide with it. I understand there's the padding around George Springer's shoulder level in this image, and that makes sense because you're going mm-hmm. back to the fence. You can tell that the padding is where like the, the poles are that keep the uh, the chain link fence in place. So you need mm-hmm. the padding. It's just like in a trampoline gym. They put the padding over the poles between the trampolines, which should be an indicator right there that you shouldn't have a trampoline. We don't need to talk about trampolines. But why <laughs> why the second padding? Why the second padding up? And I don't That's know if there's more question. above it. I didn't even check. But for what purpose? Even Aaron Judge himself would not be able to strike that padding. So Is that where the whole home run line is that that orange that's kind of line that is on the edge of the padding or is that just that's nothing that's just lighting and actually it's probably lighting and dust that looks extremely dusty Someone needs to dust the yeah. padding in left center field in Minute Maid Park. But otherwise, why yeah. why the padding? It's clearly not to dampen the ball bouncing up the pipe because you can see in the picture there is a unpadded pipe just above it. So someone is being over concerned. Yeah. I mean, look, I get it. You want more padding than less padding. But what what human? What human? <laughs> I don't know. That is a strange place to put padding unless it's supposed to hold in a billboard or something. There's a billboard to the left and and lower the left of this thing but it doesn't look like there would be any in this spot where we're talking about so i don't know even if you jumped up as high as you possibly could and stretched out your arm 
I don't think you would make contact uh-uh. with this padding. The second point to make here, do you or do you not think that baseball would be improved if it was George Springer's responsibility in this instance to get the ball and uh, <laughs> and the ball were not blown dead? Yeah, I think I think definitely yeah. better. I think I would I I think I saw a clip of him throwing another ball at <laughs> at this ball in an attempt to get this one down. I think I saw that and it didn't work. So, yeah, I would I'd love to see that cuz then you would have to have a plan, right? You'd have to have okay, what happens if the ball gets stuck in this little bit of padding? Like that would be a competitive advantage that each team would have and you'd have to have a plan and you'd have to have drills for like the outfield <laughs> to form a human ladder or something where the center fielder would run over and squat and Reddick would climb up on his shoulders and be able to get the ball. So, and you'd see like certain teams would be really great at retrieving balls from places <laughs> where they're not supposed to go. Or there was that time in, what was it, like a spring training game where the ball got stuck under the fence and Ioannis Cespedes uh-huh. was out there and he just kind of looked at it and <laughs> didn't know what to do. So we would have seen him like crawling under there trying to fish it out with a, a coat hanger or something. So yeah, I think definitely maybe like the bullpen could keep some implements out there Ooh. for poking and prodding and uh, maybe some kind of net. I don't know whether you'd be allowed to use uh-huh. foreign objects or whether that would be banned and you'd have to just use your own ingenuity. But I, I think this would add a, a great wrinkle to the game. Right. And that's, that would probably also help to keep Ichiro employed until he's 50. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> okay. And so the other thing, and you were able to watch the Dodgers game last night. During the game in the bottom, of the, a lot of things happened in the game and we'll talk about them later. But among the things that did happen in the game that we won't talk about later, in the bottom of the seventh inning, there were two outs and Justin Turner fouled off a pitch. And Justin Turner fouled mm. a pitch directly back behind home plate, like a, a backwards line drive, probably a good play in cricket. I don't know. Don't at me cricket professionals and (laughs) the foul ball hit in the middle of an advertisement for camping world which is presenting the championship series justin turner (laughs) of course justin turner's foul ball hit in the middle of the eye in camping and it it like destroyed Mm -hmm. the eye it just put like a baseball sized hole yeah Yeah. there was a hole there's a hole in the camping world sign and there was like shattered bits and detritus around it and you could tell when the Mm -hmm. next pitch was thrown like obviously there's still a hole in the advertisement we go to the top of the eighth inning and for the first pitch of the inning it's been repaired the camping world sign is new but (laughs) the eye is patched over or the the eye looks fine it looks like nothing had ever happened there but if you look closely i don't have a a picture to share here uh right now but if you look closely at the bottom left hour left i guess viewing left bottom left of the camping world sign you see that there's a broken bit just down in like the the blue like sort of the background color that the camping world in white font Mm -hmm. pops from so you can tell there's like a broken section down there which would imply i guess they would have replaced that probably earlier in the year or whenever maybe in game one maybe it happened because camping world doesn't sponsor all the dodgers home games of course it's just sponsoring the championship series so the long story short how many camping world signs are back there (laughs) and how did they replace it so quickly yeah, that's a good question because this was obviously it's not one of those like green screened mm-hmm. ads, which I think they had maybe on the outfield fences, but that was not what was going on here because there would be not a hole in that case <laughs> unless you were really going for great realism where you simulated a hole in the green screen so as not to disrupt anyone's suspension of disbelief. But yeah, no, this was an actual hole in the sign and a great job by, I guess, either the Dodgers grounds crew or the Camping World grounds crew. <laughs> I don't know if they have their own grounds crew to to monitor to tent to the sign but i mean to get it replaced that quickly obviously the installation must be easy and i guess they just 
had some backups there for this very eventuality. So they were really well prepared, better prepared than Josh Reddick <laughs> was for that ball to be lodged in, in the pointless if, padding. Now, there's a possibility that Camping World has designed sort of a self-healing advertisement, which would make me terrified <laughs> of the the coming Camping World dominance of, of the nation, followed yep. by the continent and the world. But I guess if the Camping World sign number two was destroyed in the eye and then they replaced it with one that had a broken bit in the lower left i guess that would pretty strongly suggest they only have two camping world signs then mm. back there i need to yeah. rewatch game one and find out when that sign was broken <laughs> yeah all right one other thing i don't know if we will talk about but you tweeted this i think what right before the walk-off uh, that john Lockie allowed God, to justin turner dang it you tweeted that he went Two minutes and 12 seconds between consecutive pitches to Chris Taylor with zero pickoff attempts. How did this happen? What was he doing okay. for those two So it was, <laughs> it was like a full count, I think. So already there's a full count, ninth inning, run around base to us. You, can, you know, the average time between pitches here is probably going to be more like 30 to maybe even 35 seconds. Pitchers take longer when the count goes mm-hmm. deep. But yeah, there's that still leaves an unexplained a minute and a half. So John <laughs> yeah. Lackey looked in and everything came set. And then he stepped off. And then he was like, kind of shook it off. And he looked in again. And he went through the whole thing again. And then he stepped off. And then he <laughs> shook it off and he looked in. Yeah. I think the announcer noted it, right? He says, someone said something like, is this gamesmanship or is he just trying to, to mess with Taylor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did say that. He said, is this some sort of like veteran game? No, I guarantee you that's not what it was. I don't know exactly what it was, but it wasn't John Lackey being like, I'm more experienced than you. I'm the one who's going to look competent because he didn't because he stepped off twice. And then Wilson Contreras called to one of his completely unnecessary mound meetings that he seems to do seven times an inning. And so... <laughs> Even though it's not like it's not like a regular time between pitches where Lackey looks in and then he just comes set and stays there for like a minute and 55 seconds because that's never happened, although that would be hilarious. But <laughs> in this case, it was two step offs and a mound meeting between pitches. There was a runner on base. There were two runners on base, but or no, there was just the one. It doesn't matter. But that was uh, I don't know if that's the longest time between pitches where there has been no pickoff attempt, but that's at least 99th percentile, probably hundredth. <laughs> There have been very few delays quite like that, and John Lackey completely deserved to lose the game on a walk-off home run because (laughs) go to hell if you're going to take two minutes and 12 seconds between pitches. I have no tolerance for that behavior. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the actual game. And of course, the ending led to a lot of criticism of Joe Madden, who not only used John Lackey in that tied in the bottom of the ninth situation classic kind of manager not using the closer in the tie game on the road type situation and then justified it by saying that he needed wade davis for the save which you know caused twitter to self-immolate essentially and that's something that we see every year now Dave actually published a, a post today not quite defending that move but defending it by saying that Madden actually made like three worse moves <laughs> with <within laughs> the same game which was not helping Madden's reputation but maybe his reputation for the specific move so the defense if you want to make one of using Lackey here and to be fair Lackey had pitched what a scoreless inning in two-thirds in mm-hmm. game one but he got zero outs in game two he walked a couple guys then gave up the three-run walk-off to Turner so the defense here would be that Davis was tired. 
he had pitched a, a lot in what game five of the NLDS he'd pitched a 44 mm-hmm. pitches and looked like he was laboring at the end and so he was available but according to Madden only available for one inning and not even necessarily a full inning if he came in for a partial inning that would be the end of the Wade Davis outing so he would not be allowed to sit out a half inning while the Cubs batted and then come back out and so you only get to use him once and so to maximize the use that you get out of this guy who's only available in those conditions you'd want to bring him in for a clean inning and so maybe if you knew that you can only use him for that one inning, then you might as well wait and hold him. And you don't know how long this game's going to go. It could go to extras, et cetera. And if you're bringing him in in the middle of this inning or you're warming him up in the middle of this inning, maybe you only get one out or two outs of Wade Davis instead of three outs of Wade Davis. That is, I guess, the defense, although Lackey didn't end up getting any outs. So Davis could have gotten a, a full inning if you'd brought him in at, at any point during the, the ninth. But what do you think of the blowback and the half-hearted tentative defense. Yeah, it's it's clearly not exactly the same as Buck Walter and Zach Britton. For one thing, Wade Davis isn't as good as Zach Britton. And for another thing, I think John Lackey mm-hmm. in relief probably isn't quite as bad as Ubaldo Jimenez, although ironically, Brian Dunsing shows up in <laughs> yes. both games, in this game for a little longer. Right. I get it. Uh, I mean, we all watched Davis in game five of the NLDS and he was pretty clearly pushed to his limit. Now, granted, his last pitch was fantastic yeah. and I don't think he could have. Yes. I don't know if he's thrown a better pitch in his career, but I get that you need he need more time and he wasn't going to be available for as long as his Madden would have wanted. And so I understand if if you can only use Davis for about an inning, you think then it's not as bad. So it's it's not quite like Britain. And also this is not an elimination game. It's just, you know, an extremely important right. game. Now, the I think the sort of larger point and Dave goes into further points about Madden's uh, at least what Dave thinks were Madden's mistakes yesterday, like starting Jason Hayward, mm-hmm. ignoring his pinch hitters and riding Brian Dunsing. Don't ever ride Brian Dunsing. He's not a horse. But I I would think that Jim Madden has been around a while. He's been a successful manager. And I have received a lot of tweets. The effect of is Joe Madden overrated. And, you know, you get these tweets all the time. I'm getting just a fraction of what I'm sure like Cubs and Dodgers and national other national writers are are getting about the same subject, which I get. And I'm glad that I don't have to deal with that volume of, of tweets about Joe Madden. But this would come right back to the point that got lost in the mix last year where with Buck Showalter, who I think is a a terrific baseball manager overall, and he made a tactical blunder. Mm -hmm. And Joe Madden, I think, has made a few tactical blunders. And it does not mean that he's not a terrific baseball manager. It means that he is a very good baseball manager who is not a perfect baseball manager. And uh, once again, the eternal reminder that managers have far greater responsibilities than deciding strategies in game, except those are the only things that they do that you get to see as a fan. And so it's the easiest thing to criticize. I think that the Cubs are thrilled, absolutely ecstatic to be able to have Joe Madden. He is there to foster a very energetic and supportive clubhouse atmosphere. And unfortunately, it didn't foster an atmosphere where he would have been comfortable making other decisions yesterday. But eh. Mm -hmm. I guess that means my partial defense of Joe Madden is he's good, but he had a bad day. Yeah. And it's not the first bad day. I mean, he obviously took a lot of criticism last year in the World Series, especially like if he had ended up losing that World Series, I think a lot of that would have been blamed Mm -hmm. on him. And he was saved from that by the Cubs winning game seven the way they did. But I think Even so, I remember someone wrote a column about how, like, Madden did his best to blow that series, like, right after they won, and... 
I think between that and I think it's just his reputation is kind of greater than or his national renown is is greater than maybe what it deserves to be. I mean, his off the field stuff is is great and players like him and he seems to be good at settling down a clubhouse and having his players respect him and he does wacky stuff and wearing themed outfits and bringing animals into the clubhouse and music and all kinds of stuff that seems to kind of keep the team loose and maybe after a certain amount of hearing about that and how brilliant Joe Madden is there's just a natural backlash to it just the way that as we talked about recently there's kind of a backlash to the Cubs just because they're there and they're good and at this point a lot of people are, are sick of hearing about them after their third straight appearance now in the NLCS and I don't really think that's justified with Madden I don't know maybe it is a, a little more but people have portrayed him as this brilliant deep thinker and then he shows up to press conferences wearing like cool uncle (laughs) clothes or some kind of weird hipster outfit that I don't know if he's really pulling off at this point and I think between that and between the fact that he was the Rays manager and he developed a reputation as being extremely innovative and forward thinking and he was the pioneer of shifting at the time and so we're used to thinking of him as this managing savant and so when he seems to make the same kind of mistakes that all managers make and then says oh we were saving him for the save then i think there's a perhaps greater scorn directed his way than there would be for most managers so i don't think he's a brilliant tactical manager but overall he's probably still a plus and given what he's accomplished just presiding over the raise turnaround from absolutely terrible to world series team and then winning a world series with the cubs and getting back here i think clearly he you know, is competent at some pretty important aspects of the job, but he does still make these mistakes that most managers make. I wonder if you can draw some parallels between him and sort of Billy Bean, where they used to maybe be a lot more extraordinary than they are now, just in this environment. Madden, of course, was willing to embrace progressive tactics in his days with the Rays that other teams weren't doing. And of course, just about every team is caught up. Now, the, the managerial landscape is not like the front office landscape where every team is the same. There are still your Mike Matheny's out there and your various other examples I'm not pulling off the top of my head. So maybe Madden just doesn't stand out the same way that he used to when you see a lot of stuff whenever you write anything about the A's now and how they haven't been very good for a while. And you see a lot of people thinking that maybe Billy Bean is overrated. And given where he is relative to the rest of the landscape, yeah, he probably is overrated now. But I think that Bean is not Mm -hmm. oftentimes not being judged based on what the A's are now, but rather what he used to be. And he just happens to still be in position to have a job and try to be guy to the team now. But Madden used to be a great and really fun and interesting to write about. And now a lot of teams are doing similar stuff. But eh. yeah, I mean, maybe his greatest advantage as a manager early on or one of them was that he seemed to work really well Mm -hmm. with Andrew Friedman and they had a good rapport and they could share information both ways. And at the time, you know, in the late aughts or or whatever it was, that was less common than it is now. And I think now we're seeing that more and more often that the managers in the front office are on the same page and they work closely together and their whole staffs are intertwined in a way that they didn't used to be. So I think the Rays at the time were probably a little ahead of the pack in that respect. And now most teams have caught up. So yeah, probably less of a, a differentiating factor, but he does still seem to command the respect of his players with some exceptions he's uh, occasionally (laughs) angered some veterans but i think on the whole probably an asset but yeah he he does make these kind of uh, flubs that i think 
people are surprised when he does it because he has this reputation and so it's even more glaring but he has not had a particularly good series but I don't think he is the primary person at fault here he's had weird bullpen hangups this postseason and maybe some of them are justifiable but he hasn't seemed to trust anyone really (laughs) and so you know he didn't trust Justin Wilson in the division series just seemed totally reluctant to use him based on the shaky month that he had with the Cubs and so he just kind of languished on the back of the roster and then got replaced in this series by Hector Rondon who is another guy Madden has fallen out of faith with at, at points and so I think, you know, now he seems to like Brian Dunsing. I, I don't know. He doesn't really have a, a shutdown option in the way that the Dodgers do or that the Yankees do or that the Indians did. So it's a little harder to manage this bullpen and really this rotation than it is for a lot of teams. But it has not been very pretty to see him try to get the ball from the starter to Wade Davis. And, you know, I think a lot of the blame, though, obviously has to lie with the Cubs offense, or I guess you could say their opponents pitching, but it's been a very weak offensive performance by the Cubs this October. And with the exception of an LDS game five, when they just eked out that one run win, but scored nine runs, they haven't scored more than what three in any other game. They've scored two and one in the first two games of this division series. They had scored 0, 2, 3, and 3 in the other four games of the Division Series. So it's been a, a lousy several games for the Cubs lineup. Yep. And I guess if you are a Cubs fan who's panicking, first of all, get over yourself. You just won the World Series. Second of all, don't forget that last year in the <laughs> NLCS, the Cubs won game 1, 8-4, to four, and then they got shut out two games in a row. And all the talk was about how the Cubs had forgotten how to hit, and all of a sudden they'd met their match. And, you know, if you get shut out in games started by Clayton Kershaw and Rich Hill, I think that it kind of makes sense when you can take a step back. And after the Cubs were blanked in consecutive games. They scored 10 runs, then 8 runs, then 5 runs, and they won 3 straight games against the Dodgers and won the series, went on to the World Series, which they won. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could totally happen again. And obviously they're at a disadvantage now without Corey Seager, who generally speaking, the Dodgers were a lot better when Corey Seager was in the lineup this year. And, you know, he had his elbow issues and that kind of coincided with the team's slump a little bit, but he had seemed to recover. He had a, a decent division series and then somehow hurt his back between the division series and the NLCS and was left off the roster in a surprising move. And again, it's baseball. It's a short series losing one guy however good is generally not going to cost you a game not going to cost you a series but if you're going to lose anyone and have it hurt it would be Corey Seager who is one of the best players in baseball and Dodgers are deep and they have options to replace him and they've got guys like Taylor and Hernandez who can slide around and fill those spots and they've had Charlie Culberson, of course, who is, you know, a huge step back from Seager in the long run, but has had a a pretty good couple of games filling in for him. And so they have managed to take this 2-0 lead without probably their best position player. And so they have to feel good about that because he would probably be back for the World Series if they make it there. So, you know, their lineup has not been overpowering, but they've done what they do well, which is take a lot of pitches, walk a lot. They were the best in baseball at doing that, and they have continued to do that in this series, making Lester walk five guys, Lackey walk two guys before the Turner walk-off. So their strengths are playing up, and they have a much clearer back-of-the-bullpen set up with now relief ace flamethrower Kenta Maeda (laughs) is in there, and they've got Brandon Morrow looking great, and then Jansen is, as always, amazing. So I think that I don't know. What can I say? They are playing better and they are 
better and they have a better chance to win this thing. Yeah, it's really striking. There, In both series, of course, there are teams up two games to zero. And in the NLCS, the Dodgers right now, after two games, they've drawn 13 walks and they have 12 strikeouts. The Cubs have drawn two walks. They have 21 strikeouts. And then, of course, in the ALCS, it's... <laughs> Also striking, the Astros have walked four times and struck out nine times, and the Yankees have walked four times. They've struck out 27 times. That's not all Aaron times, Judge, right? because yeah. uh, I didn't know this, but let's see. Look, so Judge has struck out three times in the ALCS. That's not great in seven at-bats, but Gary Sanchez, five strikeouts. Brett Gardner, five strikeouts. Aaron Hicks, Greg Bird, Starlin Castro, three strikeouts each. Turns out that if you don't make contact or if you don't draw enough walks, then it's going to be a lot more difficult to score runs and whatever. We knew the Astros were a, a very good contact-hitting lineup. They struck out the least of any team in baseball this yep. year, and the Dodgers, uh, they've got 13 walks to the Cubs, too, and the Dodgers this year had baseball's lowest chase rate so they swung at balls out of the zone the least often and even Yasiel Puig yesterday drew three unintentional walks and in the other in his yeah. other at bat he went ahead three and oh before the Cubs pitcher whoever it was fought back so Puig came close to four unintentional walks in a game three is his career maximum he's only done that twice before so even Yasiel Puig getting in on the action so the Dodgers Without Corey Seager, well, this is maybe a, a good reminder that when a very good baseball player is missing, it can still be hard to tell, provided it's just one and provided it's not, I guess, the, the starting pitcher. Yeah, so I guess we can transition to that AL series. And yeah, you're right. That is really striking. I mean, the, the Yankees are a good strikeout pitching staff with their bullpen and their hard throwers and Severino and everyone who's pitched in the series. Tanaka, these are all strikeout guys. And still, the Astros have just refused to strike out. And generally in the playoffs, we say that it can be a good thing to be kind of an all-or-nothing offense, and the Yankees are constructed that way and have scored the highest percentage of their runs on homers of any playoff team, although not among the most teams in baseball. I think they were sixth or something in that category. But the Astros have that contact-driven lineup, and usually you would say, well, that's a negative in the postseason because it's harder to string together hits and positive events for the offense because the pitchers are so good, the defense is so good, and Yankees might have the best defense in the league. So you'd think that the Astros putting a bunch of balls in play would play in the Yankees' favor in a way because they're really good at converting those balls in play into outs. But the Astros are not just a, a contact-driven team like, say, the Royals were. They are also a great power hitting team and a patient team. And I mean, this is like the best offense that anyone in living memory, aside from maybe Roger Angel, has actually seen play. And this is it's living up to its billing. They're good at hitting for power and they're good at just stringing singles together. And we've seen both in this series. I guess it should be noted that while the Astros are up two games to zero, they've won both games two to one. Their current batting line right. in this series yes. is batting average 190, OBP 242, slugging percentage 276. So it's actually kind of like a series full yeah. of Charlie Culbersons. But still, that's uh, that's yeah. better than the Yankees in. And yeah, I, I think that the contact clearly has been there in the series. Uh, Lou Severino, I know he he came out with a the shoulder thing and the Yankees have, they say they've cleared him. We'll see if he gets another chance to start in the series, but it never looks good when a pitcher like Severino comes out of a game throwing four innings without a single strikeout. That's kind of one of those statistical indicators that maybe something was a little bit off. But yeah, yeah, we've seen the contact hitting in the series and Carlos Correa, I think I'm going to write pretty soon, but just the plate coverage that he's been able to show has been incredible in in game two. Mm. He hit a home run. I forgot who I guess it would have been Severino he was facing. He hit a home run the other way on a two strike pitch that was 
like a 99 mile per hour fastball outside off the plate and he just hit a home run the other way anyway. Mm-hmm. That's the one where the, the little kid kind of reached over but didn't really. It was a home run. Right. And then the, the game winning yeah. double, which granted should have been a zero out run into out at home. Well, I don't know a better way to put that. But mm-hmm. Correa hit a double <laughs> off Chapman on another like 99 or whatever mile per hour fastball just in like the low away corner and he just drove it to the right Mm -hmm. center gap so that's just the fact that Correa is still like just newly I think 23 years old it just really underscores like this this is why people have been talking this guy up for a while I know he hasn't been on like the Mike Trout level but you can see that kind of leap offensively because he's just he's so good but in any case uh, the Astros have been able to win two games without really hitting yet but just yeah comparing Mm -hmm. the strikeouts the strikeout numbers in the series the Yankees haven't even given themselves a chance yeah I wrote something at the all-star break I think we were like predicting a staff post about who would be the the best player in the second half or at least we were asked to make predictions and I just predicted that Carlos Correa would be the most valuable player in the second half and almost immediately (laughs) of course he got hurt and and missed a huge chunk of the second half so that didn't happen but that was where my thinking was with Correa at that time, which is that basically, yeah, he's been fantastic, but he is about to ascend to that level where we're talking about him as, if not the best player in baseball, maybe the leading candidate right behind Trout. So I think maybe he'll get there finally if he has a full healthy season next year. And yeah, I mean, this has been a really exciting series and it swung on a couple plays that could have gone either way. I mean, all of these games in both series have had some thrilling endings. And yeah, we we can talk about the Atuve send and that play and you know, whether it was a, a smart send or, or not based on how likely he was to score, although he obviously ended up scoring. Unfortunately, it's a case where Gary Sanchez gets blamed for bad defense again, and we were just trying to come to his defense and pointing out that, yeah, he's not the greatest at blocking pitches, but he's good at framing, he's good at throwing, he's obviously great at hitting. And thought he'd actually done a, a pretty good job of, of blocking in this series as a whole, or, or in the postseason as a whole, I should say. But, you know, it came down to this play where Altuve, by all rights, should have been out. He was 25 feet, according to StatCast, from the plate when the throw from Gregorius, courtesy of Judge, came into and made contact with Sanchez's glove. But, I mean, I, I can't really blame him all that much for this play because the throw was not good. It was a bad feed. It was a short hop. It was in the dirt. And, you know, it's a pressure packed moment. Obviously he is monitoring where the runner is. He's, I guess you're not that worried about being run over by Jose Altuve relative to (laughs) most players in baseball, but still you're checking to see where he is and how you're going to apply the tag and you're trying to time it perfectly. And we are talking about one second here, which is a lot in the realm of plays of the plate, but not a lot in real life terms. And he had to corral this bouncing ball that's coming in at at high speed because Gregorius has a good arm and then he has to turn and apply the tag and figure out where he's going to touch it to Altuve with the ball so not easy and you know maybe a a better gloved catcher would have made this play maybe Sanchez would have made this play seven times out of ten I don't know but this time he didn't and he's kind of at fault for that but definitely not fully at fault for that and you could criticize Gary Pettis if you want a lot of people have for saying it was a too aggressive ascend in that you know he decided when the ball was hit basically that he was going to send Altuve even though the ball got to home plate a long time before Altuve did and it worked out fine and Altuve's fast and he was even faster than usual on 
this particular play. And of course, if he had been thrown out, they still would have had Correa at second in scoring position with one two out, outs. I think, so right? it wasn't quite the oh yeah, right, one out. Well, I guess if Altuve had been thrown out, then it, it would have been two outs, right? Because there was, I think, Reddick. Oh yeah, you're right. Before that. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been quite the Alex Gordon scenario. But anyway, it was really exciting. And that's the thing. When Gordon didn't go in the World Series, it was probably the smart move. But it was still disappointing that we didn't get to see it happen. And this time, I don't know, maybe sending him wasn't the smart move. But it was really exciting that we got to see it happen. So from that perspective, I'm glad it happened. Yeah. This is why the Alex Gordon conversation is never going to die. Because it's not a matter of just working out the timing. You want it to just be a matter of working out the timing. And and maybe D.D. Gregorius and Gary Sanchez isn't quite the same duo as Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey, two absolutely fantastic defensive players. But the whole idea of sending a guy in this situation is to just put pressure on the defense. And you can't just assume that everything is going to be perfect. Gregorius is a good arm and Sanchez is a good defensive catcher. But when you put pressure on the defense, it, it all it takes is it's not even a bad throw, just like a not great throw. And who knows, you know, you could have sent Gordon, even if he was going to be out by a second and a half, it just takes a ball a little in the dirt or just offline and all of a sudden Gordon scores anyway so that's just the thing that is un knowable. I do think the mm-hmm. the math is a little bit different. I doubt this is what was going through uh, Pettis's head, but there was one out, but this was Araldus Chapman on the mound, and if you had stopped Altuve and you have runners at second and third with one out, well, what kind of chance do you think you really have of getting that runner home from third? Marwin Gonzalez is mm-hmm. up next, and he's not so much of a great contact hitter for the Astros. He's fine. He's he's certainly not uh, too strikeout prone, but he's, he's still Marwin Gonzalez, and that's still Araldus Chapman, and then after him was Yuli Gurriel, followed by Carlos Beltran. So it's not like the best hitters in the lineup necessarily were coming up for the Astros. And with one of the best pitchers on the planet on the mound, you figure, well, uh, maybe it's worth just kind of giving it a shot. Now, I don't think that you could ever say that it's worth giving the runner a shot when he's not even in the frame when the ball arrives at the catcher. That's just that (laughs) I think is strongly suggestive of a bad send. But I haven't worked out the win expectancy math on what kind of odds you need Altuve to have. And I don't know what kind of odds there are. This is a, a just a unique scenario where you don't know exactly how the defenders are going to respond so it's uh it's fun it's fun to see what i would call irresponsible Mm -hmm. base running and i i get why people (laughs) want there to be more action in the game instead of just this by the book lawyer ball or whatever you want to call it because it either Mm -hmm. at the very least it makes for out to the plate which are great and at the best of times it makes for ridiculous outcomes that i'm not sure anyone deserved what happened altuve i don't think Mm -hmm. deserved it gregorius i don't think deserved it pettis didn't deserve it and i don't think gary sanchez deserved it but eh, what happened happened it's all done and so the astros have the lead Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, by the slimmest possible margin that they could, as you mentioned, it's two two one games. And I mentioned this on the Ringer MLB show, but this is something that has either helped or plagued both of these teams all year long. The Astros had a good record in one run games. The Yankees had a bad record in one run games. Those are really the things that set them apart during the regular season. Because if you look at their run differential or any of the underlying stat ways of evaluating teams, these teams were basically neck and neck, but they were. Separate separated by what 10 wins or something like that because of these one run records and I don't think that means anything if anything you would think that a one run record aside from the team's talent and just pure luck would be based maybe on the bullpen and bullpen management and I think those are things that the Yankees excel at for the most part so I don't know if there's any significance to this but this is the way it's happened and We mentioned the 27 strikeouts, and obviously most of those came courtesy of Dallas Keuchel and Justin Verlander, who were fantastic. And I don't know that 
A.J. Hinch necessarily has a clearer idea of what he wants to do with his bullpen than Madden does, but he just hasn't had mm-hmm. to make those decisions because Keiko went pretty deep, at least by the standards of starting pitching in the 2017 postseason, which is like if you go four, <laughs> you're like ahead of the game. And Verlander obviously pitched a complete game, 124 pitch gem. And I mean, he was just brilliant. And Tom Verducci had a great piece about the changes that Verlander has made and how he's very into preparation now. And he has altered his slider and it's nastier than ever. And it was definitely nasty in game two. And I mean, Verlander is a great story. Getting him in that midseason trade was just incredibly important. This Astros team would not look nearly as scary without him. And he has totally delivered on what is turning out to be one of those mid-season trades that we will talk about forever. Yeah, I guess before moving on just to Verlander, it's worth pointing out not only have the Yankees lost, uh, not only are the Yankees being outscored by two runs in this series, but you have Altuve, who's basically supposed to be out at the plate, but then he's mm-hmm. not. So there's a run right there. And then, of right. course, in, in game one, Greg Bird was thrown out at the plate by Marwin yeah. Gonzalez on a close play. So it's just like that. That is the difference. Those plays are the difference in this series right now. Yeah. Like that, even though it's a 2-0 series, it really couldn't be closer. So who knows? You know, now the Astros, the Astros knew their strength was going to be the top of the rotation, and now you've got the Charlie Morton, Brad Peacock part, where neither one of them really ought to see a order the third time through. So it stands the reason the Astros are about to have to use their bullpen. So there could be some more run scoring coming up, but the mm-hmm. Astros bullpen is actually pretty good. It's not quite like the state the Cubs bullpen is in. So anyway, moving on to Verlander, I was reading the same Verducci article as as you is and as many other people have. And one thing that's it's curious, there's the anecdote of Verlander, I guess, looking at the grip of himself throwing his slider. And before Verlander was traded, his slider was already changing with the Tigers. It was already slowing down. It's kind of weird because Verlander used to throw, at least based on the pitch tracking information, he used to throw like a regular slider. And then I think it was last year, it just suddenly started getting harder and looking a lot more like a cutter. Mm-hmm. It lost more of its sink. It gained some velocity and it was a good pitch for him. He had a really strong 2016 season. And then I guess it was determined that this year that slider cutter was becoming a problem for some reason. And so he started slowing it down and adding a little more depth to it. But that was happening even before the trade to Houston. So this is another thing I'm going to try to write about when this podcast is over, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to say about it because his slider was changing even before he was traded to Houston. Mm. But clearly Verducci was able to get that information if not from Verlander himself, then from someone right. who works with the Astros. And like that would be a weird thing to make up. Yeah. So I don't exactly know what I'm going to find. Verlander made some kind of change, but I guess maybe the bigger point is that he was already changing his slider mm-hmm. at the time of the move. But maybe more important than anything that specific and granular is that this is a pretty good example of when... A small sample is not just a small sample. Verlander, of course, was traded at a time when his season numbers were not fantastic, but he had ripped off something like six or eight or maybe even 10 strong starts basically in a row. And he looked a lot like sort of classic Justin Verlander. And when the trade was made and a lot of people try to point to the recent success Verlander has had, then anyone who was pessimistic about the trade was saying, oh, the Astros gave up a big prospect haul and Verlander's recent results are just a small sample. And you have to look at the whole season and he hasn't been very good, which is true. But with a guy like Verlander and there not very many players on Verlander's level in the first place, mm-hmm. but with a guy like that, I think you just sort of have to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's had sort of struggles before that he's always been able to adjust away from. His stuff was always there. And I think that when you have when you have someone like Verlander and he looks like he's healthy, I think you can just sort of assume a true talent level and figure, well, he's probably going to find it unless his stuff is worse. And since his stuff wasn't worse, well, 
he found it and he found it at the right time. Mm -hmm. So not often do you see one of those impactful midseason trades that really makes a difference in the playoffs. But you really couldn't ask any more of Justin Verlander than he's given the Astros so far. Yeah. And the change or whatever changes he has made is not really like the changes that CeCe Sabathia has made. And that was the kind of thing that we thought Verlander was going to have to do, that he was losing speed on his fastball a few years ago. And it looked like he was going to have to try to find a a second actor's career where he was more of a finesse control guy or slowed down his breaking stuff or whatever. And he really hasn't had to do that. He was maybe dealing with some unrevealed injuries at the time. And now, I mean, he still throws really, really hard. He's one of the hardest throwing pitchers in baseball even now, whereas Sabathia actually did lose a lot of stuff and has had to become like a cutter guy and has, you know, been a, a king of soft contact lately, which is different from how he was before and maybe not quite as good but still pretty effective these days Verlander has not yet had to make that transition yeah maybe he is more inclined to look at video and scouting reports and analytics and Verducci had some good anecdotes about that but he still has great stuff so it's not as simple as just saying that he has managed to compensate for declining stuff by being smarter I mean maybe he has but his raw stuff is still really great so it's been an incredible career And it's been fun to watch him have this kind of second wind after we all wrote him off. So I don't want to, you know, give Keuchel short shrift, but it's hard not to after that kind of throwback complete game start from Verlander. But Keuchel was also great and just vintage Keuchel and everything was down and out of the zone. And he was just preying on these hitters who were taking perhaps generous strikes. And and yeah, I mean, Aaron Judge has been a, a focal point of a lot of the criticism just because... His contact is bad, and I think whether it's a team or a player, if you are more strikeout prone and you're more of an all-or-nothing offense, I think you leave yourself vulnerable to more of a backlash when things aren't going well. Because if you're the type of hitter who slumps just kind of, you know, rolling grounders to second base or whatever— or just just hitting the ball, making contact, but weak contact, it's just not as glaring, I think, because when it's the postseason and everyone's on the edge of their seat and it's scary and high leverage at all times and you're striking out and you're not making contact, there is that still prevailing belief, I think, among fans that, like, well, when you put the ball in play, good things can happen. And if you don't put the ball in play, no good things can happen, which is true to a certain extent, but maybe more bad things can happen if you do put the ball in play weekly. Anyway, I think it just sticks in people's mind when you have like guys on base and it's a big moment and you just watch a pitch that gets called strike three or you swing and miss and Judge has done a lot of that this postseason and I don't think it's entirely his fault. I think a lot of it is the strike zone and when he has had good moments, they've been really, really important good moments. But I think just the Yankees as a whole and Judge as a microcosm of the Yankees, it's more of an all or nothing lineup and when an all or nothing lineup is more nothing than all, it's a lot easier to criticize and it it just looks worse, even if it's not necessarily achieving worse results. Yeah, right. It it sort of comes out of the same line of thinking that leads to football coaches not wanting to go for it on fourth down very often because they just think that, well, it's not worth the chance of of looking bad. And it just it's sort of, I guess, a a conservative observer bias where you think, well, at least if you put the ball in play, you've done your job and then you make the defense make a play, which, of course, is not true because you can hit a lot of weak balls in play. But a guy like Judge or a guy like Gary Sanchez, who is not nearly as strikeout prone 
as Aaron Judge, but still clearly strike out prone, at least against good pitchers. They're going to strike out, and the difference between a good couple games and a bad couple games is going to be basically turning one or two of those strikeouts into a long fly ball or line drive that is either a double or a home run, and that's it. Figure if a guy's going to take, I don't know, 20 swings over two games, maybe two swings is going to be the entire difference between a guy who was really helpful and provided the big extra base hit and a guy who just struck out one too many times. So Judge is not the only guy who's been striking out a bunch for the Yankees. He is, of course, the guy who's struck out the most, and his ALCS statistically is really a a wonder, or ALDS, I should say, statistically is a wonder to look at how often he struck out. It's not all the strike zone, but I just, I can't bring myself to assume that Aaron Judge is just some kind of bad now. I don't think anyone's figured him out. He's just faced a bunch of good pitching and everyone, especially Dallas Keuchel, is just throwing everything down and away. And I think the Indians tried to bust him a couple times up and inside. It's kind of one of those fastball up and in and soft stuff down and away situations, which is not unique Mm -hmm. to Aaron Judge. That's a pretty common approach to a lot of hitters, but it just hasn't worked out for him so far. But I've seen him go up and tomahawk a few of those high inside fastballs. He got Trevor Bauer with uh, with a Uh double, which was important. And what, he I don't even remember the AL wildcard game anymore. He homered in that yep, game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, granted, that was the twins. So it's kind of like a playoff pitching exhibition. Like, let's just get you warm. <laughs> anyway, remember how the twins made the playoffs? <laughs> but I I figured Judge, Judge is not going to remain quiet. Now, granted, Charlie Morton and Brad Peacock are going to be pretty difficult matchups for him because they're right-handed strikeout pitchers who have really good breaking balls so it's not like it's going to get that much easier for Judge but I figure we haven't quite heard the last of him yet and that ALDS however will remain a baseball wonder at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah and you found in an article last week that the playoff strike zone tends to be a little larger than the regular season strike zone and I think you argued compellingly that it's probably not because the umpires are suddenly being more generous. It's that the pitchers are better and more command guys and maybe better framing catchers. And so you just have guys getting more calls on the edges than they do in the league as a whole. And that probably has to hurt Judge more than anyone just because his strike zone is already so big that if it gets bigger as a percentage basis on those borderline calls, it's it's getting even bigger than anyone else's is getting bigger at this time of year. And, I mean, we've seen it. He's He's gotten rung up on a lot of pitches that are just not strikes, and, like, even Aaron Judge would not be able to reach them. And I think that's just generally something he has to deal with just umpires kind of you know giving pitchers the high strike against judge because he is so big but then also giving them a a low strike or what is a low strike against him but is a typical strike against most players i guess it's it's hard to just mentally port your zone essentially from a typical human to judge and so there are a lot of calls that have gone against him not to be a, a complete judge apologist he hasn't been great but (laughs) he has had big moments and he has had things go against him and yeah he's not the only one struggling I mean Gary Sanchez has also been bad at hitting in this postseason so it's it's not just judge but he is you know whether for good reasons or bad he is always going to be the the highest profile player in this lineup I think you're onto something there where judge is you know he's he's a gargantuan entity and so his his strike zone already is going to have the largest perimeter and so if you figure that if the strike zone gets bigger then it's getting bigger right around the boundaries then he just has more area to lose there is because if his perimeter is expanding but it's already the biggest so i'm trying to think of the right 
right mathematical way to put this, but strikes don't go big <laughs> for Aaron Judge. Go real big in playoffs, more big than like a Brett Gardner strike zone because Brett Gardner strike zone will get bigger just as every player strike zone will get a little bit bigger in the playoffs. But Judge is, in a sense, maybe it's... Ex- <sighs> Like the the zone boundary might expand the least percentage wise for Judge just because he already has the biggest yeah. zone, but then it's expanding and just like the the inner and outer edges of his zone are already so tall that if you well you know look you get it you know what I'm trying to say I don't need to use my words communication is only like ten percent about words and ninety percent about look you get the meeting right so I'm I'm done uh-huh. yeah well I mean often it just comes down to something as simple as that like with the Cubs. Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo are not hitting, so the Cubs are not winning games. Or with the Yankees, Judge and Sanchez are not hitting. Or we saw the same thing with the Indians and Lindor and Ramirez or Encarnacion being hurt. I mean, when your best hitters don't hit for a several-game stretch, it doesn't mean anything, but it happens and it hurts you nonetheless. So that's where we are. And now we've got two 2 nothing series. The series are switching locations, so Yankees coming back to New York, Cubs going back to Chicago. I'll be going to some of the games in New York. Is there anything about the upcoming games that you want to highlight? Any matchups, any pitching decisions, any weighing in on which of these series you think is likely to become, I don't want to say competitive, they've both been competitive, but in terms of the actual state of the series? Let's see. Real quick, just going back to an earlier point, I just looked it up to make sure. So in Justin Verlander's first full season in 2006, his average fastball was 95.1 miles per hour. This year, 95.2. <laughs> Justin Verlander has lost not a thing. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Yeah, it really unbelievable. is. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if there's, I wonder if he's unique uh, in the pitch FX stat cast era in that to, to go from age, what, 22 to now 34 with like zero fastball loss. I mean, <laughs> granted, the league as a whole has has thrown much harder in that time. But I mean, you know, I, I guess part of that is from improved training techniques and, and the way that pitchers have been used. And so I guess you could say that maybe relative to the league, he has slipped a little, but relative to himself, not at all. And he is mm-hmm. definitely an outlier in that respect. Okay, so anyway, pertinent to the upcoming games, there are just a few things I want to throw out related to the pitchers that the Astros will be using as starters. Charlie Morton, I like. Brad Peacock, I like. They have had different but very interesting seasons. So uh, I don't think that we're going to see the Astros push either guy. But just in case, I'm going to tell you some career splits for both pitchers uh, and know that the 2017 splits basically mirror the career splits. So this isn't just me being selective. Charlie Morton going to read you a few ERAs and these are ERAs related to times through the order. Career for Charlie Morton, first time through the order, ERA of 2.84. Boy, that's good. Second time through the order. 5.07. 5.07. Third time through the order, 5.72. Mm. So probably don't push Charlie Morton. This year, let's look the same. It, like amazing. He had an area of 1.25 the first time through the order. <laughs> Fantastic. Charlie Morton, so good. 3.71, 7.18. Don't push Charlie Morton. As for Brad Peacock, I can tell you it's going to be similar, but let's just use some different numbers anyway. Career, Brad Peacock, first time through the order, 2.47 ERA. Who knew? <laughs> Brad Peacock, no idea. Yeah. Second time through the order, 3.59. Wow. What a good pitcher he must be. Third time through the order, 8.48. Don't <laughs> oh, no. use Brad Peacock. Third time through the order. This season, it's uh, it's even more fun. First time through the order, 0.92 ERA. First time through the order, opponents batted 145. 
and they slugged 198. Second time through the order, 3.35. Wow, we can really use him. Great fourth inning, Brad Peacock. Third time through the order, 8.84. <laughs> Don't use Brad Peacock a third time through the order. Yeah. Bad idea. Yeah. But I think the Astros presumably know that. They're not going to let him do that, and it's going to be the Lance McCullers and or Chris Davinsky show. Yeah, I guess that makes sense given that Peacock's a guy who just came from the bullpen and has fewer pitches to work with, less ability to vary pitches as he moves through the game. So yeah, I'm sure they'll be cognizant of that and that we'll be seeing a lot of those middle inning guys. Anyway, they've been fun series. If we told you they were both 2 nothing, you'd probably say, oh, that's a bummer, but it's not really. <laughs> they've, they've both been fun and close and we'll be watching all week and we'll be talking to you about more games soon. So we will end there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who've already pledged their support include Ross Wasserman, Chad Post, Guy Kabachnik, Simon Pincus, and Chris Dervell. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you're in the mood for more playoff talk, Michael Bauman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. You can find that on the Ringer MLB show feed. It's always tough at this time of year when everyone is interested in the same things to try to differentiate my multiple baseball podcasts, but I do my best. I know a lot of people listen to both, and I'm glad that you do, so I don't want to subject you to too many of the same opinions if I can help it. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Get to some of your questions next time. We will talk to you soon. With my ring on your finger Proving that love is ours to share You're mine to heaven gold Just like this ring of gold you